The Take On Duchenne podcast is dedicated to educating and raising awareness of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or DMD, a rare and progressive genetic disease affecting muscle function. We bring scientific leaders in the field of DMD together to discuss and share knowledge, insights, and perspectives to support the continuous education and awareness of this disease. The series is brought to you by PTC Therapeutics, a global biopharmaceutical company focused on improving patients' lives who are affected by rare diseases like DMD through innovative therapies, earlier diagnosis, and improved standard of care. The information presented in this podcast is intended to be general in nature and is not medical advice. This should not replace or substitute speaking with a healthcare professional. If you are a patient or a caregiver, consult your care team with any questions or concerns regarding medical conditions. Hello, my name is Dr. Audrey Powell. I am a senior medical science liaison at PTC Therapeutics and the host for this podcast episode and educational series. In this episode, we will continue the discussion about the continuum of the disease with a focus on cardiopathology. We are delighted to have our guest today, Dr. Villa from Cincinnati Children's Hospital, to share his extensive knowledge and experience on this topic. Thank you, Dr. Villa. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Dr. Powell. It's great to be here. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your clinical experience in the area of DMD. Yeah, well, that's a, a great question. I was um, lucky enough to start um, here at Cincinnati Children's um, at one of the largest neuromuscular programs in the country. And that really is what kind of got me started down this pathway. When I first started, I knew I wanted to do cardiomyopathy and heart failure but I didn't really know that that care of dystrophinopathy and, and Duchenne was really going to become a passion for me. Um, I was lucky enough to get started in an era where more and more men um, were living longer with disease, and they had really started to do better um, based on early therapeutics and diagnostics that were coming about in the in the late 90s and early 2000s. And so by the time I started my practice, I was seeing men who were into their teens and 20s um, and some into their 30s. And so it was a little bit of serendipity of coming along at the right time. And then really, I, I was inspired by that group. These were a lot of um, families and men who were told when they were first diagnosed that, that they were going to maybe survive into their teens. And I was watching as they were coming into clinic, living productive lives, happy, engaged, and really what they were looking for is what is the next thing that's going to be able to make this jump for me? And for a lot of them, it was it was trying to find new ways to treat their heart because as they did better from a skeletal muscle and respiratory perspective, heart weakness was really starting to come in. And that was really my inspiration to kind of take this on and, and really has kind of pushed my career in that direction. Thank you. That's um, really interesting. Will you share some background on the natural history of cardiomyopathy and DMD? Also, could you please discuss the differences between Becker and DMD cardiomyopathy? Yep. So, so first, I think the most important part is, is we're kind of writing the book right now. We have some information and, and we'll talk about that. But really, the, the cardiac outcomes are being written right now, especially as we now get into a generation of men 
that has been treated from the very beginning. And I think that is a fundamental point of this. The reason the outcomes are changing is because people are being treated earlier and earlier. So what we know right now, um, most of which comes um, from cardiac MRI studies. So the first manifestations of, of cardiac disease are typically um, seen by MRI. So the, the presence of late gadolinium enhancement, or LGE, um, what we used to refer to as SCAR, but we'll talk about how SCAR may not be the right answer for that. But we usually start to see that beginning at around 15 on average. Now, what's important is that's on average. Every one of us who's a parent knows um, talking in averages matter, but our son or daughter who's in front of us is very different and very individualized. So we see some boys who will have evidence of that LGE, of that fibrofatty replacement. So I say fibrofatty because it's not just scar. Some of it can be fat. And we'll see some of that um, as early as eight or nine in about 10% of boys. But on average, they will get that at around 15 years of age. Following the development of that, heart dysfunction starts to begin and comes down by about one to two percent per year on average. So by the time most men are getting to around 20, um, they will have some degree of heart squeeze um, dysfunction. And from there, it really depends on how your body and your heart interact. So what happens into the 20s and 30s, we're really starting to just understand now. And so I think just like from a Duchenne and from a carrier perspective, um, we also have to talk about Becker muscular dystrophy and how how the cardiac phenotype evolves from that perspective. Um, again, speaking in averages, what we see from a Becker perspective is most of the men will start to develop LGE, that late gadolinium enhancement, by their late teens or early 20s. So as compared to Duchenne, where we tend to see that in the mid to early teens, we see most of our patients with Becker develop that in their late teens, early to mid-20s. Now, what's important from that perspective is that trajectory should not change what we do in terms of medication therapy. So those same three classes of medications that apply to Duchenne from a cardiac perspective should apply to Becker just like they should to carriers, which is to say when we see evidence of late gadolinium enhancement or systolic dysfunction, you need to be on an ACE inhibitor. If we see systolic dysfunction, you need to be on a beta blocker. And if we see LGE or systolic dysfunction, you need to be on, on an MRA, a mineralocoid receptor antagonist. And so even though the disease progresses from a cardiac perspective at a slower rate for Becker, those same medications need to be on. And again, not just on, but optimized in terms of dosing. We know you get a lot of the bang for the buck just by initiating those medications. However, it is fundamental to get the most benefit over time by optimizing doses. Thank you. Thank you. The current DMD care considerations suggest early diagnosis and treatment of cardiomyopathy. What is your strategy for diagnosing and treating cardiomyopathy and DMD? Yep. Great question. And, and as you heard from my last answer, I think early initiation of therapy as we start to understand how best to do this is, is fundamental right now. Um, so first, we start with cardiac MRI by around age eight 
or nine. And so we use that here and we're able to get about 90 to 95% of boys that age into the MRI scanner. We do that because as I mentioned before, MRI is often the earliest way that we can detect cardiac changes. And that matters because for that fibrofatty um, replacement of the myocardium. If we can get you on therapy earlier, we don't have ways to stop it, but we have ways to slow it down. And if we can detect that earlier, then we think the outcomes will be better over time. And all of the information we have so far suggests that that's the case. There are now more and more pieces out of data from uh, North America and from Europe suggesting that early initiation of therapy before there's cardiac dysfunction makes a difference. It helps men do better over the long term from a cardiac perspective. What are some of the medical therapies that are used in this population for cardiomyopathy? So there are really kind of four therapies, one of which um, is not just focused on cardiac therapies, but the data suggests that, that it applies to the heart as well. So first, steroids. So steroids, which are generally started by neurologists, to maintain skeletal muscle strength, we have multiple pieces of data from individual centers and then some long-term history data, especially out of Canada, that suggests that it slows down the development of cardiomyopathy. So that's first. Early initiation of steroids, just like you would want to do from a skeletal perspective, does seem to have a benefit in slowing down the development of cardiac disease. Next, from a cardiac-specific approach, there are three classes of medications that we use. One, ACE inhibitors, and the recommendations, both from the American Heart Association and the care considerations, are that we start those early in disease. So here in Cincinnati, we start those at age 10, or if we detect earlier changes, either from a cardiac dysfunction perspective or cardiac MRI changes showing that LGE, we would start right away. The other important part about that medication and for the other cardiac medications is starting medications matters, but we need to optimize the dose at each step. So that's the first step. The next step are, are medications that we call beta blockers. There are a couple of reasons that you might be started on those. Um, first, if you have any cardiac dysfunction, beta blockers slow down the heart rate, slow down what we call the autonomic drive, the, the kind of constant push on the heart when it's under stress. And that seems over time to slow the development of dysfunction and to slow the development of cardiac failure. And then third, from a cardiac uh, specific perspective, what we call mineralocord um, receptor antagonists. Um, and that is some people refer to as an anti-scar medication, but the reality is it's probably a more complicated way that it helps, but we know that it helps. Um, and those are usually started when we see evidence of, uh, of that LGE on cardiac MRI, and we would typically initiate them here in Cincinnati at that time. So just to mention, there, there are a couple of um, other medications that, that aren't as commonly used, and they may be used for people who aren't able to tolerate kind of those main three classes, or there's there's recent evidence for, for two classes of medications that, that may have a specific indication. So first, um, uh, ARBs or angiotensin receptor blockers can be used to replace ACE inhibitors for some people because we think as best we can tell that they are equivalent, or for people who have adverse side effects from their ACE inhibitors, ARBs would very much be appropriate. And we have a number of men who who could not tolerate ACE inhibitors 
most commonly due to cough, and we had to switch them over to an ARB. We would generally use those relatively interchangeably, but we start with ACE inhibitors um, from the very get-go because the, the best data is, is there. The two newer classes of medications that, that we're just starting to learn how they can improve um, cardiac function over time or at least maintain cardiac function over time are SGLT2 inhibitors. So those are sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors. That's a big, long name, but you'll hear us often refer to them as SGLT2 inhibitors. And that is a new class of medications that was actually originally developed for diabetes. And we have learned for people who have heart failure, there's a lot of potential benefit for that. And as a result of that, we have started to really roll those out within the last six months to a year in our clinic for patients with Duchenne, um, Beckers, or for symptomatic carriers who have more significant heart dysfunction or symptoms. So we would typically start those medications, those SGLT2 inhibitors, um, when heart function is below 40%. Now, there are a couple of things that are important from that perspective. One, um, as I said, they were developed for, for patients with diabetes, even though we have learned that there are benefits outside of that. So you have to make sure that your care is is discussed with your endocrinologist to make sure that that blood sugars aren't going too low. We haven't really seen that be too much of a problem yet, but I think it's an important discussion. The other thing is, is because part of the way that those work, which is to help clear um, glucose from the blood by helping people um, uh, urinate it out, there is a risk for um, infection and urinary tract infection um, and those are really important because we have a number of men, especially as they have more advanced skeletal muscle disease, those can be problems in general. So that is one where I think having that multidisciplinary team talk about the potential risks and benefits of those medications, I think is important. But I think just like most things um, with Duchenne, we shouldn't say no just because we're afraid of the potential risks. Everything that we know outside of Duchenne suggests that these medications should be an important part of treatment for patients who have significant dysfunction. And we think there are a lot of potential ways it may help in Duchenne. Hopefully we'll answer that in a more granular way soon. The other class of medications um, that actually does have a bit more evidence, it's actually a single medication that slows the heart rate. And so what we know for men with Duchenne is even before they'll develop cardiac dysfunction or LGE, we'll often see that their heart rate tends to run a little bit fast. We think that happens because um, boys and men have what we call autonomic dysfunction. The nerves that tell the heart how fast to beat are a little bit different. And so as a result, they'll have a resting heart rate that tends to run high. So it can be used actually on top of beta blockers, which also can bring down the heart rate, but you'll have to talk to your cardiologist, make sure that's appropriate, but usually those medications are pretty well tolerated. Is there any um, ideal time to, I know you mentioned that you start medication usually by 10 or earlier if there are any signs or if you see LGE on evaluation. Mm -hmm. Is there at any point where you would consider starting medication in the asymptomatic period since we know that, you know, disease is there early on that may be asymptomatic? Yeah, I actually think that asymptomatic point is really important. So for people who do not have Duchenne or neuromuscular disease, we would typically wait until they develop symptoms from their cardiac disease, and then we initiate therapy. What we know definitively is most men with neuromuscular disease will not feel those same symptoms. 
It doesn't mean they don't have heart disease. It doesn't even mean in the later stages that they don't have heart failure. The problem is, is we are trying to apply things and, and ranking and scoring systems that weren't developed for Duchenne to Duchenne. Sometimes that works. In this situation, we know for sure it does not. And so because people have muscle weakness in Duchenne or other dystrophinopathies, they often will see their symptoms late. And if we wait to initiate therapies, what that means is that we would be waiting longer than we would in other people to initiate therapy. The other important point is all of the data that we have suggested initiating these medications before you have symptoms pays dividends. And that's why the major guidelines suggest that you need to start them. If we wait, we may be a little far along in disease to actually reap the benefits that we want. The way to think about that, and this is why that, that nomenclature about LGE matters. So we used to refer to it as SCAR, and what we've started to see, especially in advanced stages of disease, is that the, the myocardium, that the heart, will eventually be replaced by fibrofatty tissue to the point where heart muscle is missing in large stages, very much like skeletal muscle disease. And if we're waiting till symptoms develop at that point, we may have missed that therapeutic window to get the most bang for our buck. Doesn't mean you shouldn't start them when those things happen, but we may have had more benefit by initiating those therapies earlier, slowing that progression, and giving men a chance to live longer without symptoms and to have better cardiac function over time. Thank you. So in addition to starting therapies earlier, um, what are your thoughts on continuation of care? So continuing standard treatment throughout the disease course, you know, at some point, um, boys and men will become non-ambulatory. And there's some thought as to what, whether or not they still need standard treatment. What are, what are your thoughts on that? So right now, I, and I think this is really important, all of the data that we have suggests that cardiac disease develops later, but still responds to those other therapies. So right now, until we have evidence, and I would say we need strong evidence to pull back those therapies, I recommend that in every single one of my patients. Because again, while we're trying to generate that data, if we pull away those medicines and you get worsening of that fiber fatty replacement of the myocardium, we aren't going to get it back. And so do I think we need to research and understand how to optimize therapy at the different stages? Absolutely, 100%. But right now, the best data suggests that those kind of four therapies, and there are newer therapies coming along from a heart failure perspective that we also um, will need to talk about. But really, we need to maintain therapy until we know that pulling them away is safe and okay from a cardiac perspective. There may be limited benefits in terms of the other muscles, but everything we know suggests those are the therapies that benefit the heart over time. Thank you. So we've talked a good amount about um, how Duchenne's affects the young men and boys with the disease. I'd like to move to a discussion regarding female carriers. Mm -hmm. What is your approach to managing them? Yep. So I think what's really important, and this, this comes back to how we talk about boys as well. We'll talk about averages, and I think that's really important, but we also need to talk about the individual. So generally, the recommendation is for screening um, beginning in the teenage years um, for female carriers. Now, what's important about that, and I tailor my therapy 
based on how their overall um, muscle weakness approach goes. So if I have a carrier who's coming to see me who has significant muscle weakness and she's 10 or 12, I recommend, hey, I think we need to do frequent screening in a very similar way to Duchenne or Becker to follow the cardiac disease. And that's important because in some of those carriers who have appreciable muscle weakness, we have seen cardiac disease as early as eight or 10 years of age. And just like in Duchenne, when we start to see those, we need to optimize their therapy, both from a neurology and skeletal muscle perspective, but especially from a cardiac perspective, because we have taken care of women who have actually developed heart failure by their late teens and early 20s, even if that's not the common process. Now, the more common thing that we see from a carrier perspective is most of them will not have cardiac disease in their teens and 20s. But just like in boys and men, the first changes that we do see when we see them, we will see by cardiac MRI. So we do recommend cardiac MRI to, again, look for that LGE, that late gadolinium enhancement to detect the earliest changes in cardiac disease. That's important because when we do detect those, we do recommend closer follow-up than in carriers who we're not seeing any of those, and we will get screening every couple of years. Usually for carriers who don't have significant skeletal muscle disease, who don't have any evidence of cardiac disease, and who aren't feeling any symptoms, we'll be screening them about every three years. For people who have changes in any of those, we will see them every year. And then if we detect more significant changes, we'll modify our, our approach accordingly. Thank you. Thank you. So based on advancements in Duchenne care, what considerations will need to be made for future cardiac care? Yeah, I think what's really important is one, understanding how our current therapies can be optimized. So I talked some about the medications. There are also newer classes of medications that are coming out um, that we need to understand how those affect the heart and how those can be optimized. And then two, there are a variety of novel therapies being developed from a skeletal muscle perspective. And we don't have any idea how those impact the heart. I use steroids as my example. Steroids were initially being used not for cardiac protection or for cardiac therapy. And then we learned in retrospect, hey, they do have benefits from a cardiac perspective. For each new therapy that comes along from a skeletal muscle perspective, we need to understand its impact on the heart both positive and potentially negative. I say the potentially negative not to be overly overly negative, but actually because if somebody's skeletal muscle is preserved over time, they remain more active, we don't know if that's going to put an increased load on the heart or not. Now, for some of these therapies, again, they may still protect the heart in the same way. We just don't know. I think we should still move ahead with all of the trials and all the things to move forward from a skeletal muscle perspective. I think that's so integral to quality of life and overall improvement. But over time, we have to pay attention to the heart and we have to compare people who are getting these therapies to people who are not or to historical control. So we can say, hey, these things are paying dividends from a heart perspective, or they may be stressing the heart a little bit. Or maybe there are going to be some that come along that carry cardiac risk. And to be able to guide families to make the decision that's right for them or men as they get older, we really need to follow the heart. 
otherwise, I think we'll be flying a little bit blind and not and not giving the right answers to families. I agree. I agree. So thinking about the adult care, because as we know, as you mentioned before, the men and boys are living longer and are transitioning from pediatric care into adult care. So what's important when considering that transition to adult cardiac care? I think it's planning, planning, planning. And the reason for that is is because I think this really, we're in an era now where this has to be tailored based on where you live, where you can get to or not get to, and how to optimize care. So I say that because at Cincinnati Children's, even though we're a children's hospital, we are taking care of a number of men who are getting into their late 20s and 30s. That care cannot always be delivered at a children's hospital um, in certain areas in the country. And, and so as a result, I think you have to talk to your cardiologist and your care team and say, okay, what are the options for me here? Can I continue to be followed or do I need to switch to an adult cardiologist? And that's really, really important to have that plan in place. Because as we mentioned earlier, for a whole generation of men, no one thought they were going to survive and do as well as they were. So as a result, adult cardiologists have not been trained to take care of men with Duchenne. They never saw them before. But now as men have started to survive into their 20s and 30s, we have to develop a new paradigm of care. And and that includes involving adult cardiologists. And we need adult cardiologists who have experience in treating dystrophinopathy or have an interest and are willing to work with providers who have taken care of older men, whether that's in their city or not. And so I think talking to your care team allows that transition to happen, allows you to understand who are the people that can become your care team as you get older, who have an interest in Duchenne and who aren't going to just come in and say, I've never taken care of anybody. I don't know why you're on these medications. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? You really need to have a, a plan in place and sometimes to meet different providers. There may be somebody who is the smartest doctor in the world, but they don't jive well with you, your son, or for other family members. And so I think having that plan in place, meeting the potential cardiologists and finding who the right care provider is, is really important because if our current trajectory continues, we're going to have more and more men living into their late 20s, 30s, and even 40s, and we have to plan accordingly so that you can get the care that you need. And that may or may not be at a children's hospital. Exactly. So given the discussion points that we've had so far, is there a quick, I guess, summary that you would like to discuss regarding cardiac care for men and boys with Duchenne? Yep. I think really the the important part right now, we're living in an era where new therapies are being developed as we speak, right? The book is being written right now. And so as we're trying to find out how to optimize those therapies, my recommendations are to families is we need to be proactive right now. We don't want to be waiting a generation to say, okay, now we finally figured out what the right dose of each of these medications are. Here's the complement of medications that we need to use. We need to be proactive right now so that we can continue to optimize therapy as we're learning. So the first part that goes towards that is understanding what an individual's cardiac phenotype looks like. From a cardiac imaging perspective, the best way to do that is cardiac MRI. Now, that's not always available because sometimes men, especially men with advanced disease, can't always lay in the scanner. But if we can get it, it tells us 
more about the heart than ultrasound, than echocardiography. And then second, as we understand what that means, what the heart rhythm changes over time mean, we need to optimize therapy early. Try to slow down the development of that fibro fatty tissue in the, in the heart so that as new therapies come along, there's more heart that's functioning better. And hopefully that will allow those other therapies to have the chance to work as well as possible and continue to promote symptom-free uh, living as men get older into their 20s and 30s. Thank you. You're a great advocate for your patients, I can tell. That was a great discussion. We appreciate you sharing your experience and insights. We are certain it will support clinicians and patients throughout the disease journey. Finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode. We hope you have found it relevant and informative. Want more episodes of the Take On Duchenne podcast? Subscribe to our show at ptcbio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're at it, leave us a rating and review to let us know you're enjoying our discussions and contribute your thoughts. We love to hear back from our listeners. Thank you for joining us today and for allowing us to raise our voices in support of the DMD community.